Hello and welcome to The LIP, the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. This is a podcast exclusively for people that are interested in the challenges that face the leadership of insurance today. We look at innovations, we look at insure tech, but we also look at tools and facilities that can help people as leaders in the insurance space, whether that be executive coaches or leading psychologists. We talk to insure tech leaders and we talk to incumbents about how they see the insurance industry evolving going into 2021. Today, we were really lucky to be joined by FJ Smith. Now, confession, FJ is someone that I've known a very long time and someone I consider a friend. And sometimes the challenge of that is that you don't cover enough ground and you skip over bits. I'm pleased to say we didn't do that. And really what I want to address is what is executive coaching and who is it for? FJ was the uh, recruitment lead at Lloyds of London for a long time. She knows the insurance market very, very well and maintains good relationships in that market. During that time, she had an executive coach and decided to go on a journey of being an executive coach now. And today, actually, she works as an empowerment coach and we get into what that is and how different that is. I think executive coaching gets a bit of a bad press. It's either seen as a cachet and a badge of honour or sometimes it's seen as something that steps in as remedial when you're doing wrong. And it's none of those things. Now, FJ is a specific style of executive coach. And as we talk to um, her, there are different coaches for different people. But I think this, this is such an interesting podcast for people that are kind of looking at, should they have an executive coach? When should they get one? What does it even mean? But we also go on to things about recruitment process, which is the other thing that FJ is known for. Yeah, what makes a good recruitment process? Where do they fall down? It's a really good podcast of people who are looking at developing individuals in their team, looking at their own personal development, but also people who are looking to expand and create a really robust and good quality recruitment experience, which, let's be frank, quite often we don't get. So look, without further ado, let's move to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the LIP, the Leadership in Insurance podcast. Um, I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky to be joined by a good friend and um, really interesting woman, um, FJ Smith. Um, FJ I've known for a very long time, uh, which means I'll probably gloss over half of the stuff that she's done, but she's been a recruiter, she's been an in-house talent manager, she's been an executive coach, and now she's kind of at Dubai working as an empowerment coach, which is a phrase I didn't know till about 10 minutes ago. So um, we're really going to get into executive coaching today. We're going to talk about, um, you know, why it's useful, what we can do with it. Um, but before we do that, let's um, welcome FJ. And if Thanks. you want to sort of introduce yourself and how you phrase what you do be really interesting sure um, well first of all thanks for such a, a warm welcome crikey i don't think i've ever had such an accolade <laughs> before um so obviously fj um i worked started out initially as an agency recruiter um cutting my teeth on agency recruitment which as you know alex is a very tough game, it is um, a tough game yeah. i don't think you actually know this about me but i started out in industrial recruitment <laughs> glamorous 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 um but it taught me a huge amount yeah. and it, it taught me a lot about people and yeah just how how people can either be the most reliable or unreliable commodity that you've got <laughs> um i then moved in-house to um i moved to london so i moved mm. from obviously I'm, I'm, I'm scottish so i moved from glasgow down to london and on my own, which was probably the boldest move I think I've ever made, yeah. um, and or one of, one of the boldest moves, and I started out in house at UBS. So worked at UBS for quite some time, um, and then stayed within the financial market, and then ended up at um, the the lovely Lloyd's of London, um, yeah. which I'm really really proud to to have worked at and been part of the culture there. So ran the recruitment team um, there along with my colleagues. And while I was there, I was really lucky that my boss, Susie Black, got me an exec coach. And because she, she'd basically been brought in to change 
the, the HR function mm-hmm. at Lloyd's. So I think we were the most hated department. Hated <laughs> 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 us. <laughs> what do you mean you want to change things, you know? <laughs> um, so, and being, you know, trying to change a 300-year-old organisation was was massive. Yeah. Um, so she she's had an exec coach through all of her career. Mm-hmm. And I was really lucky that she, one, trusted me enough, um, but believed in me enough to spend the money on, you know, getting me an, an exec coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no idea what it was. And I fell in love with it. It gave me the space to be able to have a non-judgmental conversation and a strategic conversation about what I needed to do in my role to be successful, mm-hmm. what what needed to be done to help this change agenda, mm-hmm. but also how I was going to do it, how I was going to interact with people, how I was going to manage those politics of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but being able to take that step back and really, really think about it, but not just think about it, say it out loud. Because once you say it out loud, it's very different from what you think inside your head. Mm-hmm. You either think, wow, that's a great idea, or that's absolutely rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> so it gave me that space to do that. How did you find that? Because um, one of the things I know that I've sort of been quite conscious of is that an exec coach is quite a personal relationship, you know, it's a one-on-one relationship. Um, did you get lucky first time? Was it the first coach you saw was good or did you have a go for a couple or? Um, I actually met with three and okay. I've actually kept that philosophy myself now. I always say to people, go and meet another couple of coaches because you're right, it's such a personal relationship. Mm-hmm. And I chose Charlotte. And I chose Charlotte because she had come from banking, mm-hmm. but she actually came from a drama and communications background as well. Okay. So she was really interesting. She was quite quirky. Um, and I just felt like I could trust her. Yeah. And that, that for me is the, is the biggest thing. That's how I've built my business as well is on trust. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's a hugely confidential conversation that you have. And also, I think a lot of people in corporate organisations, if their boss wants to get them a coach, one, they think it's remedial, which it so isn't. Believe you me, the cost of it, they wouldn't be putting that money into you if yeah. they thought you were rubbish. Yeah. You're really good. Um, and two, they think the coach is going to tell my boss everything. Yeah. But you, ha- you have to design that alliance at the very beginning um, with your, your clients and your coach that what you discuss is, is completely between those four walls. Mm. So it's really that opportunity to see how you really feel. And there might be some days that you really hate your boss and you don't agree with anything they've done. Mm-hmm. But by the time you come out of the coaching session, you've seen things from a different perspective and you'll have a different viewpoint on it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not is that does that stigma still sort of sit there that people still because i i think it sort of flips between depending on who i talk to exec coaches is seen as yeah it's either a remedial thing to address underperformance or it's a cachet thing to sort of say it's a badge of honor i've been selected for exec coaches um but i see more of that now i think i think people seem to be a bit more embracing of it but that people still sometimes do it sort of negatively or yeah, I had some clients last year actually, um, and it took me a good couple of sessions before mm. they start. You know, really trying to build their trust and also break down those barriers as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's really quite challenging for um, coaches to go in, especially if someone doesn't believe that they need it. You know, that they're perfect. They're really good at what they do. No one is. We're, we're, we're human beings. We're not robots. Mm. Um, and, you know, the way that I describe it is an athlete who is going for the Olympics or whatever competition they're going for, they have a coach yeah. at the yeah. side of the track every single day. That coach will push them to the absolute pinnacle of their performance. Mm-hmm. And that's what a coach will do for you in business or, you know, personally. So that's the way I think I would like people to think about it is that, you know, 
having someone who will one call you out on your bullshit and two champion you as well you know how you think you can get away with it and be like yeah, yeah. no one's noticed that but your coach will be like mm, really yeah we've seen that before so yeah do you think it's because people um i think people tally them up executive coaching with like counseling or life coaching which has negative connotations because the suggestions are that you're in a bad place mentally that yeah. you can't push through is that yeah. is I, that's what I see people sort of confuse the, the those sort of three yeah. professions into one and say oh it's all just for people who need help basically listen I think there's a fine line between coaching and therapy mm -hmm. depends on what type of therapy of course of course yeah but you know if you're a, if you're a, a trained coach and by that I, I mean more than a weekend course <laughs> be quite clear on that <laughs> um you know you you have to uh, be able to identify what is a coaching need and what is a therapy need mm -hmm. um and i've had that with a, a number of clients where i've had to call out and say look i, I think that's more for a discussion with your therapist mm -hmm. and if you don't have one have you considered one yeah. And I, I, for one, actually, um, did have to go for therapy once. Um, I, I fell, um, as you know, I fell a long time ago and I'd, I'd relapsed and, and it, was, it was just a really difficult time. And I didn't realise that I needed a therapist and I, and I was really, oh my God, you know, how can, how can I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a coach, I'm an exec coach, I should have everything, you know, my shit together, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and... I went for it. It was the best thing I've ever done. Mm. Best thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And I would thoroughly recommend that, you know, if people are putting it off, go and do it, even if it's a couple of sessions. And it actually taught me the, the real, real difference between therapy and coaching as well. Mm -hmm. it, it really did. So mm -hmm. the, the two for me are different. A therapist will either, okay, let's say it was CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Yeah, they'll yeah. get you to work through a, a series of of um, of actions. Um, you'll you'll talk about things. How do you feel? You know, what does that you know what does that make you think, etc. Whereas the coaching conversation is very different. It's you know it's about you know what's the vision? What are the blockers that are stopping you getting there? Mm -hmm. Who's in your way? Okay, mm -hmm. if you had to you know, literally move around the table and you've just heard your colleagues say that, what, what would you say? Oh, I'd actually say, go and have that conversation with that person. All right. What's stopping you from doing it? Yeah. I never thought about it like that before. Yeah. So you, you ask questions to get, to open up the doors in someone's head to mm -hmm. get them to look at the problem differently. Whereas the therapist will be more about thoughts, feelings. How do you feel? Yeah. Life coach um, for me is yeah, it is about someone's life, and exec coaching is purely about the, the business part of it. Mm -hmm. However, your life does come into it because your personal life does have an impact on your business life as well. So there are small elements of people's personal lives that you know that will come up. Yeah. Um, but a life therapist is is. Basically, life coaches is basically all about someone's personal life, mm -hmm. um, which obviously I don't do. I do exec and empowerment. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've dived in really deeply to all the exec coach thing straight away, and I still haven't yeah. finished finding out. So how long were you with your exec coach when you were having exec coaching for yourself at Lloyd's? How long did that go on for? Just over a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had six months, first of all, um then we had a catch-up session with with Susie my boss mm -hmm. um to you know look at what what did she still want me to work on what did I feel that I needed to work on um and what did the coach feel that I, I still you know should work on as well and mm -hmm. then we redesigned the next six months but it was a really good check-in point to actually review you know what I'd done, what I'd achieved, not only within work, but also within my own thoughts um, and how I, was, how I was tackling the problems mm. that I was facing with trying to implement a new recruitment practice within, within Lloyd instead of just having a conversation in the pub and 
he's really good, let's get him in. <laughs> Which, don't get me wrong, I still absolutely love. I yeah. still think it's great. But I do think you need to follow up with something a little bit more robust. Than yeah, just... that's true. It used to be quite good for business for people like me, though. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and everyone else. I think it's... Yeah, no, I know. Well, that's, that, that didn't help. Um, so... After you'd spent a year, obviously it seems to be a good, clearly good experience, made an impression on you. Um, how long after that did you decide that you were going to train? And, and and actually, it'd be interesting to hear about the training because you mentioned it there. There are like being exec coach, forty-eight hour course. <laughs> it wasn't forty-eight hours, no. No, it was two and a half years, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how long was it? Well, look, first of all, I, I, I just was blown away by it. I, mm. I really was. I really seen it in action and could feel the difference that it was making to how I was thinking about how things, how I was tackling issues, how I was tackling problems whenever I was in a, you know, a boardroom and I, I had a, a head say to me, expletive, 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 he didn't care what we mm. were trying to do, mm. um, which was just bizarre to me that someone felt the need that he needed to go that far to mm. get his point across um so probably towards the end of my coaching i would say probably the last two months i thought you know what i, I want to start exploring this as as you know an option for me so i did some research um spoke to lots of learning development and professionals around the london market yeah who did they use what coach why you know was there a common theme in terms of where they trained? Mm -hmm. And yes, there, there was. And it turned out that it was the same course that my coach had done with the Coaching Training Institute. So that's who I decided to go with. Uh -huh. um, also, it fitted in with work because I it was Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays. Um, I had work, homework to do during the week as well. And I was really lucky that Lloyd's allowed me to practice whilst I was there yeah. you know they actually because you have to you have to get right into coaching straight away because mm -hmm. that's the way you can learn so they allowed me to do that within the the corporation itself so I was really lucky oh wow how many because do you have to rack up a certain amount of hours in experience is that part of it yeah so the first one you you rack up um a hundred hours mm -hmm. um, and then you have to um rack up another 150 whenever you're doing um certification um and then you have to constantly update that throughout your right. coaching let's call it a coaching license okay yeah. just for ease um and you also have to record some sessions and send that off to a supervisor to they don't care they, they don't care about who it is for them it's just a voice so yeah. you know for, for confidentiality wise it, you know what they're actually doing is assessing you as the coach yeah uh, and really keeping you in check and making sure that you're doing the best of of what you can and and can do within the the realms of the coaching philosophy mm -hmm. um and also checking that you know you're not saying things that you you shouldn't do and so we're, we're really highly governed um and you also as a coach you have to have your own coach right i say have to i say have to because i think you do i think practice what you preach mm -hmm. um, but also it's a way that we can discuss things that because i can't come home at night whenever i come home at night my husband says to me how was your day all my work's confidential i can't yeah. speak about it so yeah, yeah, all yeah. i can say is yeah i had a good day or but it was tough or you know so the only person that I can really talk to about is my coach because it's within the, yeah. <laughs> the bounds of the confidentiality <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's quite interesting as well so how how should someone go around getting a coach or and and when's the sort of when do you think it's the sort of optimum times is is there a time you should that, you know should you do it before you change job when you change job whenever you like what's the Oh, I think just do it now. Mm. So, can I say, Alex, what I was going to say earlier on? GFDI. Of course you can, yeah. It's, it's my, my favourite saying, just do it. Yeah. Um, so, because there, there is no right or wrong time um, in terms of 
when you should get a coach. I think the sooner the better. I think the younger the better. Right. I think a lot, I think a lot of people make the assumption that you only have a, a, an exec coach if you're a CEO or an MD or a director. Mm-hmm. If you're just a recent graduate, you you know like it's too much, you can't do it. Actually, oh, do it mm. because you you know there's five key things that I always say whenever someone the five gremlins in your head. So will your idea work or will your, you know, whatever it is, whether it's communication, um, a project piece of work, or you're approaching your boss about something, whatever it is, will it work? Mm-hmm. Will I make money? What will everyone think? Will I still have a job? And will I still be loved? Five key things, no matter who you are, what age you are, and what job you do. Mm-hmm. So if you can start off younger, you will more than likely stop second guessing yourself, maybe quite as much. Mm-hmm. You're more empowered to make decisions. Uh, you would maybe approach things differently from what you would do without that hindsight. And, you know, you can't get hindsight until you're older, right? And you have it. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in that coaching conversation, it can make that come about in terms of you think, we get you to think 10 years down the line what the impact would, would be or five mm-hmm. years down the line, whatever it may be. So I think the younger, the better. Or if you are, if you are thinking, I really hate my job. Mm. This isn't for me anymore. Is it just that you're just having a bad time? Or yep. do you really want to change? And I think at that point, get a coach because you speak to a friend, you speak to a family member, and they'll, you know, everyone has their own opinion, their mm. own agenda. Mm. As in a place of good for you. Mm-hmm. But sometimes a place of good for you can someone actually be saying to you, calling you out. Yeah. Saying, yeah, you know, yeah. I think it's, it's really, it's a couple of things I want to pick up on. I think, I think having coaching later, I mean, my experience is, you know, I was a graduate. I went to work in the insurance industry. Um, and I only lasted like nine months because within that nine months, I, I'd, I'd seen, I'd like the client facing stuff. And, and so I was doing like commercial, glamorous, like commercial motor fleet <laughs> claims. But the bit I liked is we owned certain clients. So we deal with certain, you know, particular um, clients. And, and I liked building that relationship. So there was a role of this like um, relationship manager role. And I remember, t- I, t- I remember to this day saying to my boss, that I, I fancied doing it. And I knew what the salary was. And, um, and they went, oh, we can see you doing that in 10 years' time. And, but there was nothing else there. So it wasn't like, oh, but you need to do this step, this step, this step to get there. Yeah. Um, and firstly, that time scale when you're talking to someone in the early 20s is a graduate. Um, and I looked at the salary and I was like, not going to be enough for me in 10 years' time. And just, just like <laughs> exit the building. Whereas I now look at the industry and knowing what I know about the industry, there's loads of really interesting avenues there's there's so many different roles i might not have left i might still have done i i I happen to like my job i'm lucky but um the point being that no one sat down and broke it down for me no one asked me why i felt that i would like that job um so i think i think it'd be really useful because the amount of graduate bounce we have in the industry insurance is coming in and and then people exit and also i mean for god's sake how can you expect a graduate to really know that that's what they want to do for the rest yeah. of their lives. Exactly. You know? Like, exactly. you know, I ended up then be trained as an exec coach in, in my early thirties. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so if I'd have known what I'd, I'd, I'd do now, then yeah, I, I wish that I would have got a coach at the very beginning just to mm. even help me decide way before that you mm. know whenever I was picking university courses um yeah I would have, I would have definitely have, have loved to have spoken to someone mm. you know because my, my career's uh, teacher told me I was really good with people well she got that bit right she got everything else bloody wrong she told me I might work in Asda <laughs> I'd love to meet her now <laughs> oh god it'd be so funny it'd be so funny I, I i look back on that and and you know that period it's like i i felt that because i wanted to work in the financial services industry i i went and did a business degree which i found absolutely miserable i was it was yeah. it was so dull and uh, um and i didn't realize that i could have got any degree 
you know, originally I was going to do like psychology or English literature and, um, you know, and I could have done them, but, but you just didn't know that. Um, I, I think about, you know, just thinking about insurance. I didn't know what actuary was. Absolutely no idea. I was good at maths. So that might have been a path to go down. But if you don't know these things, um, yeah. and I think, that, I think making it about insurance, I think insurance could do more, and it is doing more, with telling people much younger about the opportunities within the market. But I think almost all industries could do with that. Um, and I agree with you on the insurance piece. I, I really do. And I know that, I mean, I've not been in London now for, for four years. I've yep. been relocated to Dubai, which is a whole other story. Um, <laughs> but, um, and that's been a scary ride. Um, yep. But um, I spoke with a client yesterday. She's been made redundant and all of this COVID thing, right? She's been out here for 14 years. Mm-hmm. And she was, um, she's done a lot of change management projects and just the way that her personality is. And I said, what industries are you thinking of? And she, she listed a couple. And I said, have you ever thought about insurance? I swear to God, honestly, her face was like, insurance? <laughs> no. And I was like, it's awesome. It's probably yeah. one of the best industries I worked in. The yeah. nicest people coming mm-hmm. from banking I mean, I mean, I mean, go back to banking. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I pick insurance all day long. And also the amount of money, you know, that is generated within the insurance industry as a whole, mm. but also some really interesting uh, things that, you know, that they, they're doing and the way that they, you know, pave the way for other countries to be able to trade, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and the advice. And, and I remember the first time I was asked to interview a catastrophe modeler. Yeah. Thinking, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> to be a modeler. Um, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I just used to sit in, in every interview, not because I needed to, but because I just I felt as though I was learning something and I loved the geekiness <laughs> of it, right? Um and truly fascinating and thinking, wow, there's people like you that do this. So before I used to go book any holiday, I used to go and speak to them and say, ah. Is there any like tornadoes, hurricanes? <laughs> I I did the same. I I I've spoken to a few people who've had this, but I don't know. As I got older, I used to love flying. As I got older, I had one really bad flight back from Thailand, and I started to get a bit uncomfortable flying. Yeah. Um. So before I flew, I spoke to um. Uh. What well, I, I placed this guy as a aviation counsel, uh, an insurance company. Um. So I spoke to him about. You know who's good to fly with and who isn't and he was basically he said he gave me these certain regions and said never get on a plane in these countries um and, and he went and personally i would never get in a helicopter but even other than that it's all fine <laughs> we, i've never been in a helicopter since um uh, you'd get me in one as well no, terrifying but no and that's the thing i think it's a misconception i think some of the stuff that's been good about how my job's evolved and my client list has evolved, we're doing much more with insure techs. Um, you know, they're, they're technology companies that happen to work in insurance, much different kind of profile of individual. Um, and it's funny sitting on the, the cusp of the two because that, that's probably a coaching session in itself because you've got these meeting of cultures um, and, and often they both carry these huge misconceptions about the other, you know, um, tech, companies can turn up and think they're reinventing the wheel they're bringing this really high-end tech native data-driven mindset and they're going into insurance companies and kind of i think this has changed this has changed over the time but there was certainly sort of almost adversarial approach going oh you people know nothing we're going to go and teach you everything um and then and then the other side of the fence the kind of more established insurance players sometimes being a bit like you know um what do you know? Uh, and, and there was this kind of, but now, I mean, there, there, obviously when it works, it works well. Um, um, but that says a lot about people, right? I presume that coaching's not going to work for people that, if you're not, if you're not going to be open-minded to, to the process, you're going to get nothing out of it. Do you know what? You're absolutely right. If you put nothing in, you're going to get nothing out. Mm-hmm. And I remember whenever I left Lloyd's to set up on my own and, um, I had to get rid of a, a certain client mm-hmm. um, and no names and it was the best thing I did. 
and I really, I really, I really needed the cash flow. I did, you know, I'd, I'd invest a huge amount into my training mm-hmm. um, and setting up. And also, my, you know, my then boyfriend just thought it would be a great time to then propose. And we had, you know, not consistent money coming in and planning a wedding. <laughs> really great. Um, so, um, and I can remember coming out of his office and stepping out onto Fenchurch Street. And I just looked up at the buildings and I just breathed and I thought, it was the best decision I'd, I'd, I'd ever made was to mm. actually cut loose. And he, he, by cutting him loose, it allowed me to then open up the doors to work with other people because I was too busy questioning myself, you know, about, about things. Um, and I spoke to my coach about it. Um, and out of that, I was so worried about missing out on, you know, that, that invoice, you know, as well. Um, I then actually got another four clients from it. Ta-da! You know, um, so it, because I, you know, I, I took that step mm. to say, no, I'm not doing this. This doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And also you're not showing up. Um, it, then, it then opened my mind up a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I started, you know, to look for other clients in other ways. And yeah, it gave me the freedom to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, being bold in your moves as well. Yes, you've yeah. got to be calculated, but also trust your gut. Yeah. You know, trust your instinct. And if you, if you think, you know what, I do actually need to speak to, uh, to someone that I don't know, then get a coach for a couple of sessions, you know, and if, if a coach tries to, most coaches will probably bulk at this, but if they try to wrap you up into, you know, you must sign up with us for six months, no, you know, I'm okay if, if someone wants to have one or two sessions. Mm. One session isn't probably going to be enough. And probably two, but if that's what the client needs, and then they come back to you again yeah. in six months' time, then you know, just let it be. We're talking about sessions. How often do people tend to have sessions? Is it is it, is that completely bespoke as well? It's it's bespoke, but they generally have them for they, they usually sign up three months mm-hmm. because it's a big commitment, right? Yeah, of course. And, so it's like, and if they've never had it before, is this going to work? Am I going to like it? So they generally sign up for three months and then three months turns into six months. Um, and then that will often then turn into nine months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then they'll go away. And then I've actually got a client that's just recently come back to me, an old client. And she's, um, she's actually a Lloyd's person. And I gave her some career coaching whenever I was there and, and she relocated um, overseas mm-hmm. and she's come back to me and I didn't actually realise the impact of the coaching that I did at the time and she's come back and she said, I'd really like to pick up with you because you really helped clear my mind on a lot of things and if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have made the decisions that I did and it was the best thing, the best move that I ever made. And I'd really like to pick back up again with you. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, and I'd, I'd only just qualified then. So um, I took that as a, as a great accolade, but also the fact that that happens with a lot of clients, they will come back to you either a year or two years later. Mm-hmm. And also sometimes you might not be the right coach for the next time. Right. But I think you actually also have to, as a coach, you have to identify what it is that they really want this time. And I've referred a few clients actually onto other coaches that I know to mm-hmm. say, look, I, th- I think this might be a better fit um, because there's nothing worse than someone having a bad experience because one, it will, you know, affect you as a coach and the name of coaching as well. So I, I think, you know, you have to do the right thing and, and refer them on if they're not the right client for you. Because mm. we we sort of touched on a similar thing just before. I was telling you that so I ran a poll on LinkedIn um, and essentially said, um, "Do people believe that psychometric assessments add value to the recruitment process?" And I actually I thought it would be close, but I thought it would be uh, yes. Uh, but it was quite overwhelmingly no. It was like seventy percent of people. There's a couple of hundred people voted, so it's pretty consistent. Um, do you use assessment tools at all? Have you experience of them? What's your view on them? 
What's yeah. your view of that poll? <laughs> uh, the poll is because you're not using it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a no. Yes. That's, um, that, that, I mean, that's, that's my thing. Most of the time, it's a misapplication. Because I think what, what became clear in the poll was it was about faith. It was like people didn't trust, didn't trust them. Um, yeah. It wasn't that people thought... Um, I think, I think people can see that there must be something that can be done there, but I just think people don't have faith in them. Um, and I just, it comes down to, I think people apply them wrongly, put the wrong, use the wrong tool, et cetera. But um, yeah. Okay, so a couple of opinions on this. Yeah. I think the people that don't trust them is because those are the people that have tried to fudge the results themselves <laughs> whenever they've tried to do it. <laughs> sure. um, and they think that they've been clever enough to get that. Um, yeah. They may well have, have been, right? Um, but all they've done is actually screw themselves over mm. for not getting it right and, and maybe missing out on an opportunity within a firm to be identified for another role or mm. training opportunity or, or, or something like that. Second of all, there's a number of companies um, that I've gone in to do some consultancy with and I've asked them about their psychometric testing. And part of your license I hold my license for it. You have to have a follow-up session with the candidate, mm-hmm. right? And let's face it, if a candidate has taken the time to not only apply to your company, your role, they've prepared for it, etc., they've got through round two of interview, now they've got to do the psychometric testing, then give them the good grace mm-hmm. to give them that time back as well, right? Mm-hmm. And you you should, with the psychometrics, actually sit down with the candidate, Zoom or however, mm-hmm. and actually ask them how they felt about it, you know, because you need to ascertain what environment they were in because you actually have a score at the bottom to tell them if they're faking good or faking bad. Mm-hmm. So what right. is that score, right? Yeah. yeah. And, but what, um, what the report tells you, if anybody looks at it, they'll just take it in its literal form. No, there's lots of correlations between things and if unless you're you're trained in it you won't really know that now i'm also behavioral profile trained that maybe i look a little bit deeper to things and i'll make those connections and then i'll ask them around that to test out the validity of it Mm -hmm. um now a lot of companies now are just simply relying on the reports that the psychometric companies will spit out um and I think unless you're actually really trained in it, you can you can interpret it lots of different ways. Mm. And unless you spend that time with the candidate to really dig deep on things, then you're not getting the best of it. From there, you should then, as a recruiter, advise the hiring manager what they should ask in final stage interview to yeah. test things out even more and be thorough. Yeah. It's scientifically proven that if you use psychometric testing, you'll be 45% effective in your recruitment. If you just use CVs, you're 25% effective. Yeah. I think I'd rather go with the 45. Then yeah. if, you, if you use behavioral profiling like me, you're 75% effective. So, like, <laughs> I, that, I mean, that was, that was what I thought about it. I mean, I, I, yeah, because someone, I had, a, I had an interesting dialogue with someone saying, well, well people answer what they think the right answer is right the right profile is but but my point was that that's no different from an interview process correct you know in in an interview process you're presenting your best self you're presenting what you think is going to get you the job so as long as everyone we know the game everyone is playing you know every candidate is essentially realistically probably doing the same thing then you're still going to see traits you're still going to see kind of suggestions of behaviors and 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 as you rightly say um, you should follow up. Um, you know, I, I did some training on, on, on some psychometric testing so I can administer them and evaluate them because I found it interesting. And the biggest yeah. takeaway I had from that was that I did a test and it said that I, um, I had less than average leadership potential <laughs> when, I, when I'd just been promoted. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I knew what it meant. I mean, what it meant was I'm a horrible admin operational, the operational element of leadership, the pooling, like appalling at it. I'm not good at it. You're a recruiter. 
We're all, we're all rubbish at admin, recruiters we are. I know, I know. I find it incredibly stressful. Um, but leadership and management are not the same thing. So I was like, well, that's different. And then the second thing that came out was that um, I found it stressful to present in public was one of the suggestions. And like my two hobbies are stand-up comedy and acting. Um, and, and so it was just, it was just wrong. And, but it doesn't default the whole thing because actually what it said is that, so how do I get over those things? Well, it's about preparation. You know, the reason that I'm happy to get up on stage and do, I've written the jokes, I've learned the jokes. I'm getting up, I don't, you know, I don't want to reveal anything, but comedians don't just get up there and <laughs> try and be funny. It's, it's the most rehearsed thing in the world. And, and it's the same with obviously acting. You've got a script, you learn it, you go out there, you, pre you prepare, you perform. Um, but you, if you'd just taken it on face value, I, I would have got no job that required me to present anything. Um, yeah. when I'd probably put it down as one of my strong points. So that, yeah. that follow-up is, is, the, is the most important part of it as well. Exactly. And, and I get it, Luke. I understand um, that, and, you know, whenever coming from in-house HR and recruitment, um, the time that you just don't have, yeah. I, I get it. Um, I really do. But I actually remember the claims department, I did a... a piece of recruitment and I actually used them as a you know a, a project to mm. really showcase mm. and I remember um one of the ladies saying to me oh my god you got them spot on how did you know everything you said they would do they're now doing that they act like that and I was like I don't have a crystal ball we just we we used the testing in the right way yeah and you know, I didn't come out and do a surprise with them. You know, we, we did a really structured interview. We um, did the testing. And that's because that's who they are. Past behaviour predicts future behaviour. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, um, but yeah, I was really happy that they, that it, it proved to me yet again that it, it did work. You know, because you, you do question yourself, right? You yeah, do yeah, go, yeah, does that work? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, it's because I trying to do... Um, administer and, and and look at mbti and mbti's got a you know bit of a kick in over the last uh, sort of couple of decades and elements of that i completely agree with and um you know would i say it's the most robust tool probably not um but it doesn't default all tools and 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 it also doesn't default like even even that i, I think because most of the time as i mentioned to you i've sat in a recruitment process and been asked to fill out an mbti questionnaire which has no place in recruitment whatsoever. But which you're not allowed to use in a recruitment process. I know. <laughs> I know, and I knew that. And I was like, well, I'll happily do it. But, uh, but and, and I never, and I also didn't have a follow-up interview as part yeah. of that process, which is, is, a, is an inbuilt part of the process. So, yeah, I think most of the time it's about misapplication at all. Um, and that brings me, I'm conscious of your time, so I will, I will sort of slot, start to wind things in. But because you've worked on site at UBS, Lloyd's, PwC, is it Alpha, Alpha Time? Is, is that how you say it? Alpha Time, yeah, out in, here in Dubai, family-owned group. Um, some massive groups. And, and a lot of the time, if I'm right, you're quite often going in and saying, our recruitment process isn't where it should be. Um, because we're talking about this, this podcast about building teams and particularly, you know, we've, we've got some insured techs that have sort of got maybe they've got a round of investment, they've got to build a team quickly, they won't necessarily have this big recruitment function. What, what makes a good fu recruitment function? Um, and where do people commonly go wrong with that, in your view? What makes a good recruitment function is clarity. Okay. People being really clear on what they want. Um, and also cut down with the jargon, four page job descriptions. Just explain what you do as a company mm -hmm. and, you know, where that role fits into it. Your job description is a sales tool, yeah. you know. Yeah. If you read a job description that was four pages long, you'd be like, you know, and I want people to remember that about their CVs as well, by the way, FYI, as, as we're on page length. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, whenever I would go into organisations and, and really sit down with them and say, Look, you know, what is it you want? And ultimately the people never have the time well guess what if you don't have the time and, and literally put that half an hour aside to really discuss what you want then it's going to it's going to fall apart 
mm. you really need to be clear on on that. And I think um, having having good questions, you know, what what is it? Really thinking about the questions, what is it you want to get out of the interview? Um, and 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 really think about that and put those, you know, really get them to describe previous examples so that it'll showcase, can they do it? And how do they think, how do they communicate mm -hmm. um, other than, well, what I would do, no. So, you know, be really, really clear on that. And also for the first interviewer to actually speak to the second interviewer. Because <laughs> that often doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, oh, they'll have had too much. Yeah, yeah, we thought he was great, or we thought she was great. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, 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 and that's it. Yeah. But actually, okay, what did they answer in this piece? What is it that you weren't happy with? Okay, let me follow up on that. So that at second stage interview, they can say, so the first, the last time that you met with us, you spoke to Alex about X, Y, and Z. Can you just go into that a little bit more deeply for me? Yeah. And it shows to the candidate that you have really spoken, you've conversed as an organisation. Mm. candidates, I think a lot of companies do forget about the candidate journey. Um, mm. So what cracks me up is, let's all waste 15 minutes of the interview talking about someone's CV, and you do that four times over. I, I, exactly why. I, one of the points I made about psychometrics, I went, if nothing else, they give you a basis for an interview to discuss something which every candidate has experienced. So as long as everyone has the same experience, I always feel that's that's a fair that's a fair experience. Yeah, some people like interviews, some people don't. Some people like psychometric assessment, some people don't. But as long as everyone has the same, that's fair. But the amount of times that I've sent, um, yeah, it could be quite senior people into some four-stage interview process, and basically they have four separate conversations about their CV and their experiences and, and quite often they're, they're, they're almost uniform, you know, and, yeah. and as you know, the candidate experience is poor. Um, the, and the client and the, the sort of hiring company hasn't actually gleaned any more information. Um, all you've got is probably four groups of people that at the end go, Oh, we probably like that person more. Yeah. And it's not about suitability. It's just, we just like that person. And that, that's not unimportant, but it's not what you would say, you know, robust is what we're always looking for. Um, and you know what, you know, I mentioned to you before, I'm, I'm recruiting just now um, for someone for, for my company. Yeah. And oh, I've had so many good CVs um, and I've really had to stop myself from saying, oh, I really like them. Um, <laughs> and I, because it is, it's a halo and horn effect, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think oh, I'd have, you know, it'd be great, you know, working with him or working with her. Yeah. Um, and I've had to be really, what is actually this person going to do for me? Mm -hmm. How are they going to help me? And also they're better at other things than me. If mm -hmm. someone's better than you, hire them. It's, it's a no brainer because yeah. they're going to make you look good, right? And so therefore, and, and make your life easier. Yeah, so I yeah. think, you know, being clear and actually um, being transparent throughout the whole process mm. is, is my advice. And you, you asked at the beginning, so you asked what would make it good and what was the other one? What was the other question you asked? Oh, that's just bad, isn't it? When it doesn't, what, why it doesn't oh yeah so what what is the most common thing that people get wrong in their the recruitment function what are you most because quite often i speak to you and you you've been hired on contract to go and fix some disastrous recruitment function um what's your sort of i suppose what's your tick list you go in what are the first couple of things you look at and, and what's the most common thing that's wrong with it um they never have interview packs right never never <laughs> never um, and sometimes the bigger the organisation, the worse it is. So everyone thinks, like, oh, nice and shiny on the outside. Inside, ah. is, you it, know. Is, it, is there a, there's a slight arrogance, I think. And I think this plays to ego. And we touched on this. We were talking about, you know, is it better to have a really profitable 25-man business as opposed to have a 200-man business? Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, the answer is whichever is most profitable. But a lot of people go for these big, you know, they want to build a big business. Um, mm -hmm. There's something about interviewing which I find extraordinary in that it's almost a lot of companies never train people to do it. They have no fixed process for it. 
uh, we just sort of think it's something that we can do. And I think everyone likes to think, well, it's just talking to people and asking questions about a job that I'm hiring for. Therefore, I must be good at it. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. That's actually the next thing on my list is untrained interviewers. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I remember having to prepare for a court case years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, the interviewer, one was untrained. And two, she rewrote her interview notes. And that's what sealed the case. Wow. And it was a... No, this was... 18 years ago and it was a £13,000 out of court case settlement Mm -hmm. Um, and what the lawyer did was she actually held up previous interview notes this woman had made scribbles all over the place etc again just on her CV no structure which was Mm -hmm. an odd thing that they were like how could you properly assess this woman and then the second one was the notes that she had that looked like a diary entry and she was yeah, like yeah, yeah. why are you so different <laughs> said, oh I rewrote my notes and she was like oh so these aren't the notes that happened at the time you rewrote them afterwards and she was wow. like um, <laughs> um, so um, I, I would say the untrained interviewer not, of not understanding that you're taking part in something that could become a legal process yeah. um, and and how important that, that is I think also um, bias um, I don't know if it's happening in London now, but it, it definitely people that are talking about it in the London market before I left was actually removing candidates' names to yep. um, remove unconscious bias, yeah. uh, whether it be with um, uh, sex, uh, um, race, and, and also age for me as well, because just because someone is younger doesn't mean to say that they couldn't do you know, a job and mm. obviously the same goes for the other end of the spectrum, someone being older, you know, mm. making that assumption, you know, I changed my career um, and whenever I finally left uh, Lloyd's, I was in my late 30s and I decided that I thought, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it and if it all fails, then that's okay because yeah. I will have learned so much. And don't get me wrong, my ego would have taken a massive bashing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They'd probably find me curled up in a corner somewhere. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I've decided to take another bold step and actually change my, my business model again. And again, throwing a whole load of money um, at it. Um, and let's see what, what happens. But um, I think I would rather look back and say I gave it a go than yeah. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. So, and I- and I think that's a perfect segue to what you said at the start, which I didn't know what it was. But um, so you come come for exec coaching, and now you define yourself more as a an empowerment coach. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I know you've been working in schools. Is that related as well? Is it, is yeah. It, yeah. So it'd be good to hear about what an empowerment coach is. So empowerment coaching is about empowering you to make the decisions that you need and want to make. Mm-hmm. I think. You know, the, people get really wrapped up about titles, don't they? And you can call me the cleaner for all. And <laughs> not that I'm downgrading uh, cleaning because I personally love it. Um, but uh, no, a, a joke. But you know, you can call me whatever you want. But for me, an empowerment is is huge because w- without it, we we can't function in our jobs. You know, you, you talk about being people want to be empowered in their roles. Mm-hmm. They want to be empowered in their lives to make decisions about things mm-hmm. and to be able to run with it. And for me, working with young adults, teenagers is, has been a, a huge piece of my change and journey because if we can, if we can actually coach these kids from a, a younger age, the impact that it's going to have on corporate organisations is huge. Yeah. And the, the benefit that that is going to make Mm-hmm. Um, like we were saying at the very beginning, if we'd have had a coach, whenever you know you're a graduate, whenever I was trying to decide what I was going to do, and which, by the way, what I studied isn't what I've now ended up doing. No, of so course not. Yeah, it just goes to to show, right? Um, and an empowerment coach will will get you to take that step back and really look at what are you doing, 
what do you need to do now and what do you what needs to happen to make the change happen and to get you to where your vision is where your strategy needs to be mm -hmm. and where you ultimately want to end up so for me empowerment coaching is really about empowering you to be brave do it just go with it what is it jf the jfti I'm not, sure I'll, I'm not sure I'll use that quite loosely with the kids. Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that going to be on the website? Just fucking do it. Yeah, I think I might get it somewhere on the website. Um, but um, yes, I've started working with schools. I still work with corporates and look, that was a huge, a huge thing for me to step away from. Mm. Massive, it's been a massive gamble. Um, and I thought, Again, but if I don't if I don't do it now, I'll always wonder what if. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky that I've got a supportive husband, family, friends, and I've I've literally taken myself off the radar, yeah. um, taken myself off of all of social media, um, including LinkedIn. I was um, I was trying to find you last night to do some last minute prep, and I was like, where has she gone? If you're not on LinkedIn, FJ, you don't exist anymore. This is what's happened. <laughs> well, it'll, be, it'll be back up by the end of the week. My, my, my branding specialist has basically warned me. Good. Good. Well, that, because that makes the end of the end of the uh, podcast difficult when I go, where can people catch up with you? These, <laughs> nowhere. No, they, they can. They can, absolutely. Um, yeah, they can email me, um, fj at clearviewwithfj.com. Or you can connect with me on LinkedIn, that's fine. Um, and also Instagram um, page as well, Clearview with FG. So the, the school stuff is, is going really well. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really a big believer that I start with age 15, yep. right through until they finish university at 21. And, you know, it goes up in level of complexity and, and challenge in terms of, you know, from career coaching, interview training, internships, Social media, I abhor social media, I hate it. Um, I think it has got a real negative um, impact on people. People mm -hmm. really, you know, judge themselves um, and they don't need to, they're, they're mm -hmm. good as, as they are mm -hmm. or as they want to be and everyone's mm -hmm. different for a reason. Um, but also universities, 34% of universities look at kids' social media. Really? them. <laughs> Um, seventy-five percent of companies check out your social media profile before. Um, yeah, I know that. I mean, I, I, I'm definitely. I, I'm. It's not so much I'm guilty of, but the amount of times I might, you know, be part of a process, and and I'll, I'll have a client go, "Oh, we found, we saw this online," and um, and someone brought something up in an interview where they found out this this guy unexpectedly was a DJ because he was in his like fifties and. I don't know. I'm like I'm making massive stereotypical judgments there, but it was like quite surprising. He was like a house DJ, um, but then I think the CEO of Goldman's does that every in, in Ibiza. But he's the CEO of Goldman's; he can do what he likes. Um, but this, uh, but in an interview, and this this candidate was really thrown by it in a really negative way. He just didn't like it. He was like, "Why have they? Why are they looking on my personal social media? Why are they bringing up personal things about me?" Um, he found it really intrusive and, and I really agreed with him I, it was it is intrusive but it's also the reality right and you've got to kind of balance the two um, yeah, let me ask you this you own your own company you own your own agency as well and if you had to hire someone that you then found out that they'd made some really horrendous comments about yeah you know, and how, and then your client's seen it. Yeah. And because you've employed that person. Well, of course. I mean, know, particularly, I mean, particularly in my, in my profession, you know, when you're, you know, you're trying to remove bias, like proactively trying to sort of um, help with D&I. And um, if you then go and find some comment, you know, yeah. you, you've got to do due diligence and look at it. So that, that's the thing. There is, because it's a thing that's out there, it, it's a really difficult situation in terms of you owe it to yourself as a business to, to, to look, particularly if they're going into a position of authority. But I do also see the other side of it and that it's, is it private or is it not? Or 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a great, great area and it's, it's been a great area in the law for quite some time now. Yeah. Uh, but the way that I say to the kids is, if your mother or your grandmother would be ashamed of what you've written, take it down. Just yeah, think those, those are most of the fun bits, aren't they? Um. <laughs> My mother would be absolutely ashamed of me that I've sworn on this today. <gasps> you know, I know uh, it's funny though, isn't it? Because um, I swear like a trooper, but you put, put a camera in front of me. I feel uncomfortable that we've sworn, but I'll beef it out. It's fine. We'll, we'll do it in the edit. Um, look, FJ, like, thank you so much. I'm going to put links um, to you um, in, in the below in the comments section because um, by the time this goes out, I think your website or, or at least your LinkedIn will be back up. Um, so uh, thank you so much for spending some time with me. And if anyone wants to reach out to FJ to talk about coaching, empowerment, or anywhere in between, you can, you can get her on the contacts below. Thank Great. you. Thank you so much, Alex. Great to see you. Bye. Bye. So guys, that was FJ. Thank you for listening. Um, that was a really good conversation. Um, and I hope you don't mind the swearing. I know my mum won't like it, but uh, there you are. Um, if you want to find out more about what I do, um, I am an executive recruiter to the insurance, reinsurance and insure tech space. I'm always open to talking. Find out much more about the business at www.finpro.com. Or obviously you can contact me, Alex Bond, on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Bye.